Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to Episode 19 of the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. This podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and in all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project to advance our understanding of knowledge exchange to improve the learning of Canadians. You can download this episode from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net. From iTunes directly, just search for KM Podcast. Alternatively, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. Dr. Kirsten Kramer is one of Canada's leading criminologists. She explores very difficult issues like infanticide and improper use of power, such as happened with the Ontario coroner's fabrication of evidence. She takes her role as a disseminator of knowledge and teacher very seriously, yet she feels that more could be done to support knowledge mobilization. This interview was conducted both in Ottawa and over the phone from Toronto. Her infant daughter, Evie, was with Kirsten, and she decided that her mother should pay more attention to her. Canada has great infrastructure to produce research information, but more can be done to support exchanges between sectors, perhaps via the use of knowledge brokers, perhaps through changes in culture, perhaps through teaching students to be better knowledge consumers. Enjoy this fascinating conversation of one academic's journey to make her work more available for decision-making. I'm here in Ottawa with Dr. Kirsten Kramer, who's actually from Winnipeg. Good to see you, Kirsten. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself, say a little bit about who you are and the type of work that you do. My name is Kirsten Kramer. I teach sociology at the University of Winnipeg. I'm trained as a criminologist. My work is really in the field of the sociology of law, in particular looking at the sociology of criminal law. I do research in the area of both infanticide, forensic science, coroner's inquests, and sociological theory. The reason I wanted to talk to you was that I heard you on CBC. And I think it was Anne-Maria Tremonti, who was interviewing you about some very controversial topics. Mm-hmm. Could you let people know what that was about, what those interviews were about? The first interview was about the safe haven movement in the United States and the question of providing safe havens for abandoned, so that people could abandon babies safely rather than commit infanticide or kill them. And the question is whether or not that sort of thing prevents infanticide or can address the question of infanticide. I was interviewed because I'm a Canadian expert on infanticide and I'm often asked what is a solution or what can be done to prevent infanticide and the the safe haven is, is often one of the examples that's given of something that can be done. In the interview though, one of the points I made was that the safe haven movement is more about trying to save babies and prevent abortions than it is to support women and mothers, right? So on the face of it, it seems like a really good idea, but if you think more clearly and carefully about the causes or the root causes of infanticide, it turns out that what on the surface looks like a really good idea really doesn't address the problem at all. I mean, one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting in that interview was that here you are, a university professor, dealing with very complex issues that are controversial, that lots of people have opinions about them, and mm-hmm. I don't, and I think that the, the opinions run, you know, the full, the full range of society, but part of what you were suggesting was, here we have research knowledge, right. and here's how it's applied, right. and here are the results of that application, and you were doing it in a very clear, actionable way. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, but, but I think that's quite rare. When I, when I hear a lot of interviews or I hear a lot of people who engage with complex issues, they say it's too complex and we don't know what to do. Whereas what you're saying is that if we look at it from a, per, a perspective, we can actually 
take actions. Yeah, I think that that's that's true. You can take action, but and you also need to be aware that people will often say, or journalists will often say, okay, well, what's the like, what's the solution for the crime problem? And I'll say to them, well, you need to be a bit more specific. There is no solution to the crime problem. You need to understand what cu- what types of crimes you're talking about, what, what type of people you're talking about, environment, location, all of those kinds of things. That takes a little while, right? Like you have to slow down a little bit. You kind of have to be prepared to think about things a little more carefully, talk about them for a little little longer, and kind of think through solutions that address the problem that you're asking the question about. So being able to match your approach to the problem is very, very important. And I think that maybe journalists, academics, policymakers have a tendency to think that, well, they have a tendency to manage bigger populations, I think, rather than think about it in terms of managing smaller populations. Okay. Because when you think about managing bigger populations, the knowledge gets spread thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner, and it helps fewer and fewer and fewer people because the management style is to try and manage large populations. Okay. That's actually a perspective that has not come up in any of these interviews, and perhaps we can talk about how the management of smaller populations relates to this concept, this, you know, this growing concept around knowledge exchange, knowledge mobilization, These interviews are done for the Canadian Council on Learning. And one way that they think about knowledge exchange is bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. Right. Could you put that within the context of perhaps some of the issues that you're dealing with? Well, I I mean, I'm a university professor, so I teach students. And what I try to do is bring... I bring a certain amount of knowledge to the students, but I also try and teach them how to access knowledge in order to change not just behavior, but also the way that they think about things. And it, I think, I tr- believe, that if you can change the way people think, you will be able to change the way that they behave. I think that they have to be able to have uh, a particular idea and be convinced by the idea before they're going to change change their behavior. And I'm always trying to connect, when I teach anyway, when I'm always trying to connect the examples I give about research and the knowledge that we're talking about to action and to behavior. So what does this mean? So for example, if you have if you're voting for someone in in your riding and they're going on the news and they're saying we need to attack the crime rate by putting more people in prison. I say to my students, will you vote for that person? Think about it in those terms because you can make an impact on how we respond to crime by not voting for that person because they don't know what they're talking about. They're not making not being a political actor using knowledge. They're being a political actor in a different kind of way. They're trying to manipulate the system to curry favor with voters because they think that's what people want to hear. And to a certain extent, that has been what people want to hear. So you have to change that. It's within your capacity as a university student to make some kind of a difference. What if you, because some of your work doesn't just stay at the university, it also goes into policies, goes into the bureaucracy of various agencies that affect the, the, the way that they 
interact around the evidence? How do you... Maybe. I'm not maybe. so sure. That okay. <laughs> I'm not so sure that it does. I, I'm always asked to do interviews when infanticide is committed because I published a book on infanticide. So I'm considered a Canadian expert on infanticide, and I, I think that people come to me because they assume that the peer review process works well and that if I've managed to publish this book, I might have something to contribute and say. So I often go on, or I'm interviewed by journalists and, and go on the radio. It's sort of after that happens that I get called back again and again and again. So it's kind of like a snowball effect. And I think it's because I can speak clearly on the radio. I can communicate what I think are probably some very complex ideas in not necessarily a simple format. I think they're still relatively sophisticated ideas. I'm able to communicate that in a way that works for radio. So they end up phoning me back, and it works in that sense that I'm able to communicate academic knowledge to the broader public. So maybe I just I have a bit of a unique skill in that I'm able to do that. And I work hard at being able to do that. I practice at doing that. I don't just walk into an interview unprepared. I will take notes. I'll uh, think about the kinds of questions and the kinds of issues that I want to talk about. I'm not necessarily going to let the interviewer direct the interview, right? So I think about what I want the public to know from my work and I'll communicate that. Okay. Can you imagine a system... I mean, you said that you're not quite sure that your research actually gets into policymaking. No, I don't think it really does. I don't think it does. So why do you think that there's such a push on the academy to have everybody's research be policy-relevant? Or to... If, if that's not particularly your job or it's not what you focus on? I think that... First of all, it depends on on the kind of research. I think that there's the push towards, you know, evidence-based medicine, that kind of stuff. But governments only want to fund research that they think can affect Canadian society immediately. They want it to be policy-relevant immediately. The truth is is that 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 research isn't always policy-relevant immediately. I don't think that... Policymakers are especially good at reading academic work critically. I don't think that they're especially good at differentiating between good research projects and bad research projects. I may be wrong there. I also think that there's a, a kind of disdain for academics, right? We don't really think that they have anything to contribute. Just the research doesn't get taken up in, in wider circles. Okay, but there's a there's a contradiction in sense of the public discussion that's happened around the issues that you deal with. That you just said that whenever there's a case of infanticide in Canada, you get called because you are an expert on infanticide, and so it's not that your work is policy relevant all the time, but when right. you need to know about infanticide, you're the person to call. I'm the person to call. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. How? But that's different. It's different having a journalist phone me than it is having a policy person phone me. Okay. Nobody in the Department of Justice has ever phoned me to, uh, to say, I'd like to fix the infanticide law in Canada and write policy on the prosecution process. I don't think they're ever going to do that. Okay. Right? There's no incentives to do it, would you say? Or why do you think they well, don't, they don't do work it? Well, they don't work for incentives, okay. I don't think. I don't think they work for incentives. And may, Yeah, there's there, but there is no incentive to do it. That's right. 
<laughs> right, Evie? <laughs> no, that, there's no incentive for them to do it. There's no, um, there's no political capital to be gained. Part of what I've heard in other interviews, and it was interesting, especially with the interview with Ben Levin, who had been a deputy minister and is also mm-hmm. an academic, mm-hmm. he said that the polity, the political part of government, and the policy part, the bureaucratic part Mm -hmm. of government, function in two very different ways. And the academic world functions in another different way. And that there's perhaps two two models of how there may be intersections between them. One is spending time together, that Mm -hmm. people get to know one another, but that's a very expensive thing to do. The, The other option is to have people that are dedicated to transferring or translating knowledge, who act as knowledge brokers, who would take, say, your work at the University of Winnipeg and would go to the Department of Justice and say, you know, you guys really need to look at this work. Do you think that that's a a reasonable... fantastic and reasonable idea. So can you imagine what that would look like, say, at the University of Winnipeg? How could the University of Winnipeg have the equivalent of a technology transfer office for the natural sciences and engineering for the social sciences and humanities. Can you imagine what that would look like? I can imagine it would look like a separate office, you know, staffed by a director with a number of policy people working beneath them in combination with some academics who are doing research. I imagine that it, it could look something like that and that knowledge could be you know, mobilized from from that. If you don't have a desk and you don't have a phone and you don't have a room to do it in, which my institution does not, there's absolutely no way that that sort of thing can happen. So it has to be built in as a piece of infrastructure. It has to be built in as a piece of infrastructure. Okay. Yeah. Part of, I think another part of this perhaps is cultural, in the sense that what Canadian Council on Learning is trying to do is create a, a culture of lifelong learning. We don't necessarily think of policymakers engaged in lifelong learning, right, that they more or less have an expertise beforehand, but I think that what knowledge brokers could do is assist that process of gaining access to new findings, to new perspectives. What do you think are some of the key elements for that culture change of of interacting between these various sectors? Oh, that's a tough one, Peter. I, you know, I know that academics are supposed to do that anyway, as a matter of course. Academics are meant to be lifelong learners and continue to expand their knowledge base and produce new research. Uh, in reality, I don't think that that happens. I think, again, it, it requires uh, a certain kind of infrastructure. It requires a kind of commitment on the part of government for the time to, to do that sort of thing. You know, sabbaticals. People used to be able to take sabbaticals to do that sort of thing. They're no longer the sort of thing that is seen as a legitimate, uh, legitimate way to spend your time. You're an academic. Yeah. And you're trained in sociology of, or criminology. criminology. Yeah. So you have a, a view of evidence. When you hear the word evidence, and you mentioned evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice, what do you think about in terms of evidence? I think about research-based evidence. I think about argument and persuasion. I think about the kinds of claims that are being made in relation to the kinds of evidence being looked at, whether it's a text or another research study or a report, a coroner's report, or a police report, those kinds of things, right? So it's a question of how is that evidence interpreted and is it being interpreted in a particularly skillful manner? So let's talk about point in time when it, what that evidence wasn't interpreted. There's an enormous controversy with regards to the coroner in Ontario now mm-hmm. who had evidence but interpreted it in a 
way that was incorrect? Well, yes and no. He actually didn't have evidence. Okay. He fabricated evidence. Okay. And I think that's that's one of the issues is the, the evidence was fabricated. It was also misinterpreted. The okay. evidence itself was misinterpreted. That, I think, is more about established networks of power and the way in which the criminal justice system pushes for prosecutions no matter what. And okay. there was no one overseeing what he was doing, and even if they were, they didn't really care about the evidence because they weren't interested in evidence. They were only interested in prosecuting people for homicide and getting convictions. So, so that was a case, that, uh, that was an example where decisions were being made regardless of the evidence. Absolutely. Okay. And it, that's actually part of the push around evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine is that decisions get made regardless of whether the evidence are, is there or not. Right. Yeah. Okay. Part of what I've been trying to think through is, you know, what is the infrastructure to do that? and Or what are the incentives to do that? And that's, um, can you think through perhaps some of the... Well, using the example yeah. of the coroner's office, I think you have to hold individuals accountable. You have to hold individuals accountable for the decisions that they make. And in my own experience, both in the university and with this case of the coroner's office, I don't see a whole lot of accountability. I don't see a lot of people being held responsible for the kinds of decisions that are being made. Universities are, are essentially self-governing institutions, and nobody has a boss. Nobody is overseeing what's happening. There's nobody that oversees what's happening in government. There's nobody that oversees what's happening in the university. And ultimately, all of these bad decisions get made without the evidence to support them, and no one's accountable for the bad decision once it's made. I mean, that's my own personal experience working in, um, in a university setting. Okay. I'm still in Ottawa. But uh, Kirsten's now in Toronto. We uh, decided to take a, a break in the interview uh, because there were more pressing needs uh, dictated by Evie, right? Right. Okay. So, so you're now in, in Toronto, and I wanted to start over from where we were talking about infrastructure to support your work. You're a university professor. You teach students, and you help them think so that they can act better into the future. You inform the public through various channels, through the media. You publish papers that are disseminated among your colleagues. You engage in all sorts of communication and knowledge exchange, yet you're stymied a little bit uh, in terms of supports. And yeah. so if you were to think about infrastructure to support knowledge exchange, knowledge mobilization, given the type of work that you do, what would that infrastructure look like? because there's, I mean, there's a lot I can do myself with the technology that's available to me or, or the technology that I have through the university. It is that universities invest very conservatively in knowledge mobilization. They kind of tend to leave it to the individual to kind of do all that work themselves. So in, in terms of a commitment from the institution, Really what it would take is more support, I think, at the departmental level. So, for example, if we wanted to have a really rockin' sociology department website, which I myself have taken on as a, as a faculty member, it would be really useful to me if we had someone at the university who wasn't spread so thin. There's a, there's a point person to set these things up, and they 
post the information on how to do it. In the end, it sort of comes back to me to do it. And I don't really think that's the best use of my talents. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm a, I'm a fairly smart person. I'm not afraid of technology. I can figure all of those things out. But the resources that the university has should be, should be used a little better. And rather than kind of expect faculty or, you know, just the people who are willing to do it, to do that kind of knowledge mobilization, I think that they should be thinking creatively about how they can use the available resources that they have and, and maybe make some different kinds of investments in support for, for faculty at the departmental level. So, so that it becomes, that knowledge mobilization becomes a regular part of what a university does, not just an add-on or something that's yes, off to the exactly. side. exactly. Exactly, or something that's done kind of, okay, in your spare time, can you set up this website for us, right? right? Because lots and lots of faculty members do that kind of on an individual basis, but imagine if you did it, did it sort of more systemically, how much more information you can, you can sort of get out there and, and let people know the value of what sociologists do. Okay, perhaps this touches a little bit on your reference to greater the need for greater accountability and responsibility. How can you make the academy more accountable or how can you make reporters more accountable to make, to, you know, more responsible in terms of their use of information, of getting the right facts, of going to the places that they're available? Um, how do you change the behavior so that the best knowledge that we have available is actually what enters into the conversation on a regular basis? Oddly enough, the, the structure is there for that. The structure exists for accountability. It's, it's really a question of what's the enforcement mechanism. Like if people aren't behaving in a transparent manner, if they're not acting in the ways in which we would expect professionals to, to act in the workplace, what's the kind of mechanism that says to them, no, you can't do that, right? And I think that, you know, part of this we've talked about already, it's, it's about transparency. If, if things are more transparent and you can kind of see what, what's available and what kinds of resources the university has that aren't being used, then there's kinds of questions are asked about, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you spend more time um, accessing your resources? I'm going to ask that impossible question that I get groans from people when I ask, but I'm going to ask you to look into the future. Uh, you're in the middle of your career. Uh, you have, you know, you know unless you decide to retire early, you have 20, 30 years ahead of you in terms of the type of work that you're doing. Or do something else, quit or, my job and do something or do, else. Or do something else, absolutely. In the next 10 years, where do you think knowledge mobilization, knowledge exchange is going to be? Yeah, that's, I could groan about that too. I don't know because it's so difficult to teach students how to be uh, knowledge consumers. They don't seem to be able to dis differentiate between knowledge and information. They don't seem to see knowledge as something that empowers them. Like they sort of just want the quickest thing that they can get access to in order to complete their assignment so that they can get an A or a B and then they can get the credit and then they can move on. Like the value of Knowledge seems to me, in in my experience, to be diminishing. Okay. So I would hope that that you know I'm like I hope that's not the case, and that's sort of why I 
you know, why I, I think I have a personal responsibility and a professional responsibility when reporters call me to speak to them so that knowledge that I have or the knowledge that's available in the wider uh, society is talked about. Okay. So it's really about getting the best of what we know into the places where people are going to be making decisions, and that becomes normal. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Kirsten, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. I wanted to oh, thank, thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Peter. It's It's been great. And I hope that uh, Evie gets over her cold. Yes, thank you. All right. Okay. Thanks.